think that the Dao tribe of Indonesia could be much harder to get to than what they already are. There are literally miles of ocean and dense jungle that separate these people from the rest of the world. And the huge rugged mountains surrounding their valleys stand like the walls of a fortress around their lands, keeping most outsiders from coming in. In fact, it really wasn't until the last decade that the Tao people began coming into contact with and learning more about people from the outside world for the very first time. Before then, they had still never really ventured too far outside their own territory, because as far as they were concerned, these lands beyond their borders were the lands of the evil spirits, the very lands that their deceased ancestors had gone to, and a place that one may never return from if he were to venture too far. They went on undisturbed for centuries, but it never was a question of if their borders would or wouldn't be breached. It was always a question of when. Little by little, the outside world was pressing in on them, most of these outsiders looking for natural resources from which they could make their profit. The Tao people, all the while simply living and dying as they always had, unaware that soon everything would change. We know this land well. We were some of the first outsiders to actually hike up through their mountains and into their territory. In 2005, when we took a small boat up their river and ventured up through their mountains, many of the women and children ran in fear because most of them had never before seen weird-looking pale-skinned people like us before. We told them we were there to bring them a message about the Creator of all things, a message that would make known to them the trail of eternal life. And it wasn't long afterwards that they had told us they'd been waiting for this message and that some of them had even had dreams in which they saw that pale-skinned people would someday come to them carrying a great message. God had prepared them before we ever arrived and so they invited us to stay and learn their language and teach them about their Creator. So we moved deep into their jungles and built houses alongside theirs so that we could begin learning their language. All this was done in hopes that we would be able to one day tell them about their Creator and His Son Jesus. The rest of the world wasn't far behind us, however. Soon afterwards, we heard rumors of other outsiders coming up the same rivers we had ventured up only a few years before. The Tao people told us that these people had with them big machines that could move large amounts of dirt all at one time in their search for natural resources. These outsiders were building houses along their rivers, and they had with them a large box in which you could see people killing each other and committing adultery. They invited the Tao people to watch these things with them, and referred to the box as a televisi. 
They would also give large amounts of money and gifts to anyone that would help them find the natural resources that they were searching for. The Tao people had many questions for us about these outsiders. Like, what is that strong drink that they bring that makes them angry? And why do many of them refuse to eat pig meat? Why do many of them say they are Islamic? They asked us, what does this word Islam mean? The more these outsiders came up their rivers, the more concerned we began to get for the Tao people. And it wasn't long before we realized that we are in a race. A race to prepare the Tao people, both mentally and spiritually, to be able to stand strong in their newfound faith and make godly decisions concerning the various influences that are making their way into the Tao territory. It's also a race to see the last remaining yet unreached pockets of the Tao people group reached with the message of their creator and his son Jesus so that they as well can be discipled and prepared for these many outside influences. This is the battle being waged right now in the Tao people group. This is the story of the Tao people and their race against time. So this is the situation that's been going on in Dao. Uh, we've been serving in Indonesia for about 13 years, and we've been translating the Bible for the Dao people for over a decade now. Uh, this church has been standing behind us since the beginning. So I'm excited to talk to you guys this morning and, and just to thank you for, for uh, the part that you've played and what's happened there. But God's done some amazing things in that tribe, and you guys have played a part in it. And that's what I'm here to talk about this morning and just uh, praise our God together for the neat things he's done and he is doing. In a moment, we're going to look at Revelation 21. But as you're turning to that passage, a little bit more about the Tao tribe. My wife, she's the Bible translator, and uh, I'm the teacher. My wife has been translating uh, for a long time now, and she just this past year, she finished her first draft of the New Testament. So where things are in the work right now, this last time we were in the Tao tribe, um, we finished up that draft, and now those first thousand copies of that Tao New Testament is being uh, printed in Singapore. Uh, the Tao people are semi-nomadic. They don't stay anywhere for longer than a few days. So uh, we're printing those Bibles in a way that they're small, lightweight, on light, lightweight paper, so that they can carry them with them as they travel their circuits and follow their semi-nomadic culture. We're printing the Bibles on uh, waterpro waterproof covers so that the uh, rainforest rains that happen every single day won't ruin those Bibles. We're making them sealable because a huge problem over there is cockroaches coming in and eating the paper out of their books that we have print, printed for them. So that's what's going on right now with that. We're printing our first thousand New Testaments. On top of that, uh, recently we ordained our first 12 pastors. So now we're in a role where we're supporting our pastors that we've trained, our literacy teachers that we've trained. They're heading up the work and we're supporting them from behind and we're um, continuing with our translation work as well as we move on into Old Testament translation. Uh, so you saw earlier we have four sons, and uh, our kids, they go back and forth with us to Indonesia every single time. Uh, this next time, it's very strategic that we have these four sons because you get a lot of luggage with all those kids. We get two suitcases apiece. So in our whole family, we'll have 12 suitcases. And if we were to just send those Bibles post into Indonesia... They would likely be confiscated. It's the world's most populous Muslim nation, if you don't know anything about Indonesia. And the people there, uh, a lot of times, they, they confiscate things that come in through mail. Proselyti proselytizing is actually illegal. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to 
pick up those Bibles in Singapore. We're going to pack them in our suitcases and our family's suitcases. We're going to try to get them into the country that way. Then we're going to put them on a helicopter. There's no roads. There's no airstrips uh, in that people group we've been working with. So we're going to helicopter those into the different villages and get those people the Bibles that they've been waiting for. So that's what's going on right now. It's amazing to think about. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, God's, God's done such a, an interesting and amazing work with the Tao people, uh, thinking about the fact that when we first went in there, uh, even if the Bible had already been translated and we were to set it right in front of them, there wouldn't have been a single person in the entire tribe that could have picked it up and read it. They were an unwritten language. No one had even made an alphabet for their language. And as we learned their language, we equated one symbol with every sound that we heard. We made them an alphabet. Then we taught them their own alphabet. Then we trained up literacy teachers. Now they teach their own people how to read and write. And the whole goal is that they'll be able to read God's word for themselves. So that's what's been going on in the Tao tribe. You heard the uh, video make mention of the fact that God prepared these people for his message a full generation before we got there. And if there's anyone in here that hasn't heard that story, it's, it's an amazing story. It's, it's awesome to think about. Um, the way we found this out, there came a point where we'd been trying to learn their language for quite a few months. We'd been living in the tribe with them for some time. And my wife and I, we were getting Giardia and Amoeba over and over and over again. I'd had malaria close to a dozen times. Uh, we were starting to wonder how much longer we could even stay in this tribe. And uh, we had just found out that their language, as we were trying to learn this language, we found out their language was tonal, which means they say things at different heights and pitches and hold them out, hold out different words, different lengths to show differences in meaning. If I was to show you that this morning through one of their sentences and I said to you in the Tao language, that person eats people because there's cannibalistic tribes that border their, their tribe. In the Tao language, I would say, me, 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 nugi. And all four of those me's have different meanings according to the pitch you speak them at, not how long you hold them out. I was a D and an F student in high school. So when I found this out, I thought, I'm in way over my head. What am I doing here? I'm never going to get this language. But we were about ready to give up. Hadn't seen our family for a long time. We were constantly sick. And there came one morning, we just had a helicopter flight in. It brought in fresh coffee. I'd been looking forward to this coffee. Early in the morning, I grinded some coffee. I was drinking on this, this uh, coffee, and I was waiting uh, for the sun to come up because I knew as soon as the sun come up, people would start coming out of their, their thatched roof houses all around us and come up to our house, and they would sit in our house, and they would just watch us all day long. That's what they did. We were the village television. They would look at the weird things that we did, the strange contraptions we'd had, they would just giggle. Then they'd ask us a question in their language, and we would reply saying something like a three-year-old would say it, everything pronounced wrong, and they would laugh at us again, and we would just get laughed at all day, every day. That was our life. So uh, again, you can see how that would have gotten annoying eventually. Anyways, I was drinking this coffee. I was thinking, Lord, I don't want to deal with this today. I can't get this language. I want to go home. And we were ready to give up. And uh, about that time, I started hearing... Bark doors slide back from thatched roof houses all around us. And people started coming out for the day. They don't have watches. They live by the sun. When the sun comes out, they come out. And I was thinking, here we go. And I heard a guy clearing his throat. And that's how they announced they're coming. No doorbells. They clear their throat. I look down. There's a head bobbing up out of the jungle trail in front of our house. And it's my friend Apiawugi. Apiawugi's walking up the trail. And I'm thinking, I, I'm thinking to myself, I've got to think of a question to ask him so I can get him talking, so I don't have to talk and be laughed at. This is what I was thinking. He walks up on the porch, and we did the morning greeting, which is, Nemo me abba, 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 abba. And they snap knuckles, abba, abba, abba. And it's got to make that noise three times, and you keep snapping. That's their greeting. And I said, friend, good morning. He sat down, and I said, friend, 
I have a question for you. And I'd only been able to work out one question in my mind. And he, got, he said, okay, shoot, what's your question? And I said, all right, friend. I said, when we moved here, we built a house. I said, you built a house right next to us. In my limited language ability, I said, why did you build a house next to us? Why are you staying here? The reason this question came to mind is because the Dao people are semi-nomadic. They don't stay anywhere longer than two to three days. But he and his wife and his daughters had been staying for weeks and months. They weren't going anywhere. It was unusual. He looked at me and he, he said, friend, he said, Degapia. That's what they named me, Degapia. He said, Degapia. He said, I need to tell you a story. Degapia, in their language, it means tall white tree. That's what they named me. <laughs> so he says, Degapia. Uh, I need to tell you a story. I said, Okay. And he said, friend, Degapia, he said, when I was about this high, that's, that's how they convey their age. Nobody knows their age in the entire tribe because they don't know years and they don't know weeks. They know days and months because of the moon and the sun. He said, when I was about this high, I woke up in the men's house one morning. There's men's and women's houses. They don't sleep in the same house. He said, I woke up in the men's house. All the other men were waking up. My father was in the room. He sat straight up. He woke up last. He sat straight up and he said, friends, I've had a strange dream. And we said to him, well, tell us your dream. And he looked at us and he said, it was the strangest dream. I dreamed that there was these strange-looking foreigners, these pale-skinned people. They hiked up into our valley system. They began trying to learn our language. And then when they knew our language, they told us a message greater than anything we'd heard before. After we heard their message, we became so close with these strange outsiders that we were like family. We were like brothers and sisters with these people. And then I woke up. Apiawogi looked at me and he said, that was my father's dream. He said, and then, all these years later, he said, when I saw you and your wife hiking up into our valley, he said, I saw your strange look. You told us you were here to give us a great message. He said, and I remembered my father's dream. He said, the reason that I've built my house right next to yours is because I'm waiting for your message. That's what he told us. I heard that and I thought I'd heard him wrong and my lack of language ability. I asked him to tell me the story again. He said the same thing. And then as we continued to meet other people from two different valley systems, we found out that not only his father had that dream, but other men from other villages up these two different valley systems, their fathers had had the same dream. And then when we taught for the first time, we didn't start with Jesus Christ. We started in Genesis. The reason why? Because they were animistic people group. They, they believed that everything was controlled by evil spirits. There wasn't even a word in their language for a spirit that was good in nature. So we had to start out with a, laying a correct foundation, starting with God, being good in nature, not evil, and then build off that foundation. We taught for three months, and people that usually don't stay anywhere longer than three days stayed for three months and listened to that whole message, and then the Tao Church was born. And the reason I share that story with you this morning is because I believe that that says something about missions. I really believe that if God wouldn't have done that, that if he wouldn't have prepared those people before we ever got there, then nothing would have changed. The reason those people believed the message of God is because God prepared those people for his message. He drew them to himself and he made his word come alive in a way that we missionaries never could. We can stay there and we can preach for 20, 30 years till we have nothing left to give. We can get malaria over and over and over again. But if God does not do what only he can do, and that's draw people to himself, no one's going to get saved. Here's how Jesus put it. John 6, No man can come to me. What did he say? No man can come to me unless what? The Father draws them. That's the way Jesus put it. 
And that's what has to happen in missions. And that is why God has to get the glory. That is why, right there. Because he, he is the one that has to have, have that happen. So when we think about missions, all glory has to go to God. He is the one that brings about any change at all. Revelation 21, the reason I want to share from Revelation 21 is because this last time we were in Dow, before we uh, ordained our first 12 pastors and, and led, uh, set them in, in charge of that church there, now they're leading the church, we taught through the last three books of the New Testament. We've been laboring for over 10 years to teach through the entire New Testament expositorily, verse by verse, and we finally got to these last three books. We came to Revelation 21, and oftentimes when they hear these passages, they're hearing them for the first time. Stories that a lot of us have heard our entire lives. They're hearing them for the first time. And they're hearing them from a different culture. So they have a different perspective, a different take on things that I usually haven't thought about, which is fun for me because I'm, I'm the missionary, I'm the teacher, but I'm getting taught by them because I'm hearing things from a different perspective. I, really, I, I think about that. I think, I think God took us over there to change us as much as he took us over to change them. I really do. I believe that he teaches us about himself through taking us through interesting situations and teachings over there. But Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, I'd like to read it and then talk about some of the interesting things that they said about these, these verses. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 4 go like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth had passed away. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For these former things have passed away. So we look at these verses and we see a scene painted for us and we see a wedding taking place. We see the father that's giving away the bride, that would be God giving away the bride. Other parts of the New Testament talk about the bride being equated to uh, us as believers, the bride of Christ. This bride is being presented to Jesus Christ, his son, and it says that she's adorned beautifully for her husband in this wedding. Then it says there's this loud proclamation at the end of a wedding, a lot like our weddings. We always say at the end of a wedding something to the effect of, by the power invested in me, by the state of Pennsylvania and God, I now pronounce you man and wife, something like this. Well, this also shows a loud pronunciation at the end of this wedding ceremony, except for this time it's a little bit different. He says, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he goes on to describe how we will dwell together with this groom, Jesus Christ. There will be no more pain, no more dying, no more crying. It'll be awesome forever. <laughs> and this is the kickoff to eternity with God. This is, this is going to be awesome. Now, when we hear these things from our culture, we can identify with this scene because in our culture, we have weddings, uh, when someone's going to get married, if any of you have been married in this building right here, you can picture it. You can remember this scene that unfolded on the day that you got married. You would probably remember those two doors right there swinging open. You remember the music starting. Here comes the bride. And you remember this bride beautifully adorned from head to toe. 
She's coming through. She's ready for this wedding, and the groom is standing up front. She's walking, being presented by her father, most likely, arm in arm down this aisle. The groom, he's standing here, and he probably remembers those doors swinging open and seeing her. He probably, you can probably remember the butterflies in your stomach. You can remember the nervousness in your chest, the happiness in your being as you are waiting for this for a long time. We can identify with this scene. So this is from our culture. We get this. But in the Tao culture, they don't do any of these things. They don't have a ceremony. The bride doesn't get dressed up. She's not walked down the aisle by her father and then presented by the father. They don't do any of that. Uh, The very first time we were in Tao, when we were spending those initial months learning that language and that culture, they were studying us as much as we were studying them. And they had all kinds of questions about our land and how we do things in our country. And I'll, I'll never forget the first time that a Tao guy, he asked me, he said, friend, he said, I, I got another question about your land. And I said, okay. He said, in, in your land, in your country. He said, how much did you pay for your wife? And I thought about it. And I thought, this is a strange question. How do I answer this? And, and I said, well, I got her for free. <laughs> and he looked at me. Like he'd heard something wrong, he said, no, really. How much did you pay for your wife? Because in their culture, they buy their wives. I said, really, friend, I got her for free. I said, I gave her a ring. She gave me a ring. We decided she wanted to be my wife. I wanted to be her husband. We had a ceremony, and that was that. She was my wife. I got her for free. And he said, no. (laughs) And in their culture, when they hear something that's astonishing, the men, they wear that gourd, as you saw in the video, and it's hollow. So when they hear something that's really amazing to them, they flick that gourd and it makes this loud sound. And there's all these guys sitting around listening to this conversation. I'm hearing all of this. (laughs) And the women, they aren't wearing gourds. They're wearing a grass skirt. So they flick on their teeth. They go, ay. So I'm hearing, ay, ay, ay. And they're all just amazed at what they've heard. So the reason they were so astonished is because in their culture, if a guy wants a wife, uh, he actually sends his older brothers and his uncle and his father even, he sends them out scouring all the villages first to find a woman that's eligible, okay? They finally find one. When they find one, they initiate that she may become this guy's wife someday. And then the guy, his older brothers, his uncle, his father... They have to go out and they have to find an individual piece of shell money. That's what this is. An individual piece of shell money that corresponds to every individual part of the woman's physical anatomy so that they can purchase this bride. Now, in their culture, every individual piece of shell money has a different name according to its size, its weight, um, its condition. This might be called a moka. This one might be called a yo. This one might be called a kobawisinawi. This one could be called a kobawiyo. This one will be called a Sinawimoka. And they all have different names according to the different shell. And these guys, they have to go out and they have to search for sometimes months, locating and gathering together every individual shell that pays for every individual part of that woman's physical anatomy. And then on the day that they want to take that bride, they all get together in the appointed village. They have a special paper that they make out of the nest of a, the cocoon of a butterfly or a moth. They lay out this paper on the ground. They lay out all these individual shells. This is for the shoulder. This is for the arm. This is for the right leg. 
This is for the left leg, <laughs> and so on and so on. And all the men and the women, they gather around, they pick up each individual shell, and they inspect it to make sure that it's the right shell, to make sure that it's good enough, that it's in good condition for that part of that woman. And every shell has to be there, and if every shell is not there, and every part of that woman's physical anatomy is not paid for and accounted for, they do not get the bride. They don't get her. The wedding's off. So you can imagine why it blew them away when they heard that I got my wife for free. Couldn't process it nearly. There was one guy sitting in the back of this group listening to this, and you could tell he was really thinking things over. The wheels were turning. And he says, friend, friend, I've got an idea. I said, okay. His, his name's Patoma. Uh, Patoma, I said, what's up, Patoma? And he said, he said, I've got an idea. He said, next time you go back to your land, get a whole bunch of women. Bring them back over here, and then all of us can have free wives too. <laughs> this was his take on it. He's, he's pretty sharp, that one. But as we got talking about it, you know, we got talking about this passage, and we got talking about their culture, and how we should view this passage through their culture. Uh, eventually, we came to the conclusion that if you really think about what they have to do to get a wife, they have to gather every last part to, to correspond with that wife and gather her together. If you think about it, isn't it a beautiful picture of what God is doing right now in our generation? He tells us in Revelation chapter 7, there will be people gathered together from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. Every single one of them. There will be people from every last language and tribe. And when he has gathered those people from every last tongue, tribe, nation, and language, not paid for by shells, but paid for by what? The blood of Jesus Christ this time. Then this scene will go down right here, this beautiful wedding that we'll be a part of. And if you've walked the aisle before, there's going to come a time where you're going to walk it again. And this time, us guys, we won't be standing there as the groom. We'll be part of the bride, right? We'll be part of the bride of Jesus Christ, us and people from every tongue, tribe, nation, language, and people group. And this time, we won't be walking into the arms of a temporal, earthly marriage. We'll be walking into the arms of Jesus Christ. Think about it, the one that we were created for, the one that we were meant for from the very beginning. That's going to be awesome. That's going to be amazing. When I think about that, I think, you know, I don't think that there's any joy that we can experience in our existence on this earth that will even begin to compare to the joy that we're going to feel in our beings on that day. I really believe it. Because we'll be walking to the one that we were created for, the one that we were meant for since our very beginning itself, since before we were created. Think about it. That's awesome. There's nothing that can compare to the joy we'll feel on that day. This passage is a beautiful passage, and, and it talks about the scene that's going to happen and the scene that those of us that are part of the family of God will be a part of with every last tongue, tribe, nation, language, and people group. And it, it mentions how there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, the first heaven, the first earth. Think about that for a second. The first heaven and the first earth, all of it's going to pass away. This building we're sitting in, these chairs we're sitting on, these cars we drove here, these houses we live in, the jobs that we work, the trinkets on our shelves, everything gone, passed away, and then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. That's an interesting thought to think about as well. Uh, it's nearly noon already, so I'm going to go ahead and start wrapping up, but I'd like to tell you one more story this morning, and it's from the, the tribal culture. Uh, it's a very interesting thing that we found out as we were learning their language. You know, there came one point 
where I was standing in the village one day, and Jenny was hanging out talking to some of the women, and I was talking to some of the guys down in the middle of their, their thatched roof houses, and a guy came walking up the trail into the village, and it was my buddy Wikipite. And Wikipite was coming back from a long journey. I hadn't seen him for weeks. And the first thing you always do when someone walks into the village, if they're not seeing them for weeks, is you ask a very specific question. You say, Nemome, which means friend. Mena ago ye? Mena means news. Ago means have, and ye is a question marker. So friend, do you have any news from your journeys? They don't have news apps on their iPhones. They don't have TV. You know, if you want the news, you ask someone, what's the news? You know, and that's what they do in their culture. So I said, Nemome, mena ago ye? Aba, 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 nemome. And then he starts telling me about, oh, yeah, this guy up here, you know, uh, that I saw in this village a couple weeks hike away, he shot a pig. And this guy over here, he's at war with this other clan. They're, they're going hard at each other. And this guy over here got a wife. He's telling me the news. And then eventually he gets done. He asked me, And I said, oh, friend, the stuff that's happened in our village. I said, uh, you know, this guy over here, he shot this huge tree kangaroo. And this guy over here, he got sick, you know. But we gave him medicine. He was getting better. And I was talking. And all of a sudden, he stops me mid-sentence. He just stopped me. He said, friend, is it time yet? I said, what do you mean, is it time yet? What are you talking about? He said, is it time yet? He said, you've always told us that when you knew our language well enough, you would give us the greatest message of all time. He said, you speak well enough now, don't you? Isn't it time? He said to us. And I thought, man, God's preparing these people. And we still didn't feel ready to teach in their language, but we knew that he was right. We were good enough in their language to where we should start translating, getting ready to teach them. So that evening, Jenny and I talked about it. She started translating those key stories, starting in Genesis, and I started studying a very specific facet of their culture. I wanted to ask them, I wanted to know, in your culture, how do you show that a message is important? How do you show that a message is big? Because I wanted them to understand this is the biggest message they'd ever heard. In our culture, you know, we've got this thing we call a podium. We've got this beautiful building. We've got these nice chairs. We kind of dress up a little bit. All these things to show that it's an important message, but in their culture, they don't do any of those things, not a single one. So I'm asking them this, and then I started asking them, tell me your biggest stories, the the biggest stories from your culture, the stories that everybody knows and tells over and over again, because I wanted to know how they tell a great message. They told me probably a hundred stories. I documented them all, and I, I wrote them down, put them Uh, on paper, and then I started comparing these stories, trying to figure out if they had anything in common. And when it was all said and done, every story had two things in common with all the other stories. The first thing, all their greatest stories, there was almost always something killed. Maybe an animal, maybe a person. You think about our culture. You turn on the TV, most TV shows, somebody's getting killed. You know, it's, it's similar in our culture. Or grandpa's stories, or World War II stories, or fishing stories, something's getting killed. Same in their culture. But the second thing was very interesting. Always in the story, before something was killed, that thing was killed, there was a natural phenomenon that took place. There might be an earthquake. There might be a strike lightning. There might be a rumbling thunder. There might be a strong wind. There might be a rainstorm. There might be dark clouds. But every single time, in every story, there was a natural phenomenon, and then something was killed. And it was really strange. Eventually, we came to find out that in their language, they don't have exclamation points, but what they do have to show the climax of a story, the main point of a story, is a natural phenomenon in every story. So just to drive this point home, if I was a Tao person this morning, and I was telling you a story in the Tao fashion, this is the way I would do it. I'm going to tell you a story. But you all pretend that you're Tao people, and I'll pretend that I'm a Tao person. I'm Apiawugi, and I'm going to tell you a hunting story. This is the way I would tell it. I would say, all right. Friends, 
I went to my garden, my wife, my, my three daughters, we got to the garden uh, a few weeks ago and we started looking around and I sent my wife up to one end of the garden. I said, get some greens. I sent my kids down to one end of the garden. I said, get some sugar cane. And then I walked up to the top of my garden to get some sweet potatoes. I walked up to the top of my garden. I started looking around and I noticed that there was holes all throughout my sweet potato patch. Something had been stealing my sweet potatoes. I thought, what in the world is going on? I looked closer And then I realized that there was wild pig prints all throughout my sweet potato patch. And a wild pig had been eating my sweet potatoes. I looked up and there was a break in my garden fence. And that pig had broken right through my fence. It was eating our food. And I knew if I didn't do something to get that pig, my family wouldn't have any food. I had to do something about it. So I told my wife, okay, gather as much as you can. I gathered the few sweet potatoes that weren't destroyed. We walked back to our our thatched roof house, and we ate dinner that evening. And as we were eating dinner, I came up with a plan. I decided that I was going to go the next morning, and I was going to try to get that wild pig. I was going to try to kill him. So the next morning, before anybody else was awake, before the sun was up, I slid the bark door back from my thatched roof house. I came out, grabbed my bows and arrows. I started going up the trail, barely any light at all. I couldn't barely see. Finally got to the garden. I found a nice big tree that I could hide behind. I got behind this tree, and I waited. Right about the time the sun was coming up, I saw the leaves, the bushes rustling above that break in my fence. And then I looked, and sure enough, there was a huge wild pig, huge tusks, bigger than any I'd seen before. He started coming down through that break in my fence. I waited until he had his nose in the ground, and he wasn't paying attention. When he was eating my sweet potatoes again, I came out from behind the tree. I got a pig arrow drew it back in my bow. Just as I was getting ready to release the arrow, the ground shook, the sky darkened. There was a flash of lightning, a strong wind. I released the arrow, I hit the pig, and I got him. He fell over dead. It was over. This is the way a doubt person would tell the story. The interesting thing is, that earthquake didn't happen. The dark skies didn't happen. The lightning didn't even happen. None of that happened. But if you're a good storyteller in the doubt culture, that's the way you tell the story. Otherwise, everybody's going to miss the point. And when the listeners, they hear the ground shook, or they started raining, or, or something like this, they start elbowing each other. Get ready, here it comes, here, get, here it comes, here it comes. And then I shot the pig, and he fell over, and he's like, whoa. Because they all knew it was coming, every single one of them. So think about this. We were, we were teaching them for the first time, for the very first time, through their creator's story to them. We started in Genesis. We taught for three months starting about God's creation, starting with God's creation of all things and the fact that he was good in nature and he intended good for us. Talked about the fall of mankind after he put Adam and Eve in the garden, their deception by Satan, the devil, and how they got kicked out of the garden. Then we talked about the first murder. I hit all those key stories in the Old Testament. With Cain and Abel, we got to the Tower of Babel. Eventually, we got through the, the flood, the story of Noah. We got through all these things, all these key stories. And then we got through the formation of the nation of Israel, how it started off with those 12 brothers, and they were in Egypt. And eventually, God sent Moses, let him out on an exodus. He gave him the tabernacle system uh, about how they would kill these lambs. We talked about how there would be a coming redeemer that was promised from the Old Testament. And then after that, we went through all the different prophecies that talked about the coming Redeemer that was promised, that he would take the sins of the world on his shoulders, that it would be born to this family clan. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in this place. We taught through every single one of the Old Testament prophecies that talked about this coming Redeemer. We taught for two months before we ever mentioned Jesus Christ by name once. 
And when Jesus finally came on the scene, they knew exactly who he was. Why? Because he was born in the right place. He was born of a virgin. He was born to the right family. And he started fulfilling every single prophecy they'd heard from the Old Testament. And not only that, he started healing people, doing stuff that no ordinary man could ever do. He's casting demons out. He's causing them to flee. They're scared of him. Then he comes to see John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says what? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. There could be no mistaking it. He was exactly who he said he was. He was the Son of God. He fulfilled every prophecy. Then finally, at the end of his life, those Roman soldiers, they get him, they torture him, they give him that trial, they have him up on the cross, and he looks up and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then according to the Gospels, what happens at that point? Can anyone tell me? There's an earthquake. What else happened? Dark skies. Think about this. Natural phenomena. And once again, the Tao people, they're hearing this. They start elbowing each other, looking at each other, understanding from their culture that the story, their creator's story to him, to them, three months of teaching is hitting its main point. At that point in the story, the centurion, he looks up, he sees those natural phenomena, and he says, surely this had to be the Son of God. And the Tao people were saying the same thing. This was the Son of God. And they understood from that that the main point, the climax of their creator's story to them was Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sins. And then Jesus goes on and he conquers death itself, rising from the grave. He was the Son of God, wasn't he? Whenever I tell that story, it makes me wonder what else is in these pages for other people groups around the world that I've yet to hear for the first time, but things that God has put in there so that there will be people from every tongue, tribe, nation, language, and people so that they'll understand when they hear it for the first time that the point is Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sins. Maybe there's someone in this room that's hearing this for the first time. Maybe there's someone that that hasn't understood what it's all about. And if you're one of those people, get to know Jesus Christ, realize why he came, realize that he proved he was the son of God in more ways than one. He really did. And if you need someone to talk to about it, I'd encourage you to talk to pastor or someone else and, and place your trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our wrongdoings on that crossed wood is the way the Tao people would say it. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's powerful. I thank you for the people you've brought here this morning, Lord. And I really do ask you, I plead with you, Lord, if there's someone in this room that doesn't know you, draw them to yourself this morning. Help them not to settle for any excuses, but to get to know you, Lord, and to place their trust in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sins. I thank you for the people in this room that have been standing behind us for all these years, Lord. Give them an ever-growing passion for you and for what you're doing in this world. Help them to seek out new ways to be a part of what you're doing, Lord. Thank you for the encouragement they've been to us. Amen. Amen. Would you thank our friend Scott Phillips? We so appreciate the ministry that God has called you to, Scott. And as our band comes to close the service this morning, I want to give, uh, give us as a church an opportunity, two things. Number one, to respond to Jesus. You know, Scott lifted up Jesus high and mighty, and that's what we do here every single Sunday. This place is all about Jesus. It's about you understanding him and understanding how you fit into his plan. So, uh, you know, when you think about this, that God is drawing people out in those tribes unto Jesus, 
And he's also calling you unto himself. Uh, we're hearing stories. Listen, there's some, some, some exciting things, and you're going to get to hear them coming up here in September. We're going to have a series. We're going to focus in on what God is doing, and it's pretty exciting. But uh, the, the, just, I'll just share with you, last week, somebody came up and said, listen, in the middle of the night, God called me unto him. God said, listen, you've got to get here. And they walked into church. And, and people are being drawn here every Sunday to Jesus. And he's doing it. This is his plan around the world. And isn't it exciting that God has a global mission? Amen? This is so much bigger. The, the world, you hear them talk about global business. You hear all that stuff. Well, God has had a global plan long before the Internet ever existed. Long before iPhones and cell towers, God has a plan. And he's drawing every man and woman unto himself. And so this morning, I want to encourage you as we buy into that. Amen? And so uh, in just a few moments, I'm going to have a prayer. And then I'm going to, I'm going to ask the ushers to come at that point. We're going, to, we're going to pass the offering plates again. And this time, the offering will be strictly for the Phillips family, for Scott and Jenny and their ministry. And we're, we want to help them as they're traveling in the stateside here to, uh, from town to town, sharing what's going on. But uh, again, if you're our guest, feel free to let that pass you by. If you're unprepared, feel free to let that pass you by. But if maybe God's called you this morning to respond in a way to bless them uh, through some of the things that he's given you, I would encourage you to do that this morning. So I'd like to ask our ushers to come forward. And uh, if, uh, if you're here and you're not accepted Christ as your Savior, let today be the day that you start that. Open your heart and respond to him. This is real. God loves you. He has a plan for your life. And he, he's done so many things just to call you unto himself. What an awesome God. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Our Father and our God, we come before you. I thank you, Lord, for the great global plan that you have, Lord. How that you are working in every tribe and nation and language, God. And Lord, thank you that you've allowed us to, to have a small part of that. God, I thank you for the people in Finleyville and Pittsburgh and in our surrounding areas that you're drawing unto yourself. God, for the people who are walking in the door here every Sunday and you are doing miracle after miracle after miracle right here, just like you're doing in the tribes. And God, I thank you for the miracle after miracle after miracle that you're doing in the tribes to, to, to put into people's hearts, to prepare them to know that somebody's coming with a message that would be the most incredible message that they've ever heard. God, thank you that somebody one day came to us, and thank you now, Lord, that we're going to others. God, thank you for the ministry of Scott and Jenny Phillips as they go out to the Deo tribe and they, and they minister, and they, they have been spending countless hours translating your word into, an, into the words that they can understand in their own language. God, we're blessed to be a part of a ministry that, that can send Bibles in. For, for the very first time, these people will get to read your word. God, in 2016, people still exist like this that need, need just even a book, need a Savior, God. Thank you that you've given the, the, such gifts to these young family, Lord, to go out and raise their family among the tribal people and to live for you and to glorify you. God, I pray you'll be with us as we go out into our place that you've called us to, to live for you and to radiate you. And Lord, don't let us miss those opportunities to be a part of your great plan. God, bless this offering as we, as we take this in our clothes today to honor and bless your name. In your name we pray.
Amen. Let's stand together as we receive this offering and sing our closing song. Our Father, Creator, You mold our hearts together. There's no one higher than You. Redeemer, Defender, our great and mighty Savior, there's no one higher than you.